This is the Falcon Twin Podcast from falcontwin.com. I'm Brendan, and this is commentary for pages 239 to 252. And also questions. I've got a couple of questions here that I'm going to answer after I finish talking about the pages. So, page 239. This page is title contrast referring to the difference between the last scene and this scene, where the last scene was filled with horrible depictions of gore and violence. And here we have a very peaceful sort of nature scene. Off in the distance you can see the sea and some mountains. The mountains don't look very good. This is one of the few wide establishing shots in Falcon Twin that really doesn't have a lot of stuff going on. I mean, if you look down in the valley, you can see a few things. But there's nothing really fancy or interesting going on like there is in the establishing shots for near Marah or near Candela. And when I get to the near Marah page, I'll talk about those. Like I said, there's the ocean off in the distance, and near Marah is probably beyond those mountains. And I don't know exactly how long it's going to take for Mika to get there, but probably at least a couple of days. Page 240. So here's Mika sort of thinking about what she's done and why she did it. And if you look at her thoughts, they're kind of conflicted. Parts of her are quite happy with what she did, and parts of her are very appalled at what she did. Especially here, this is a very interesting thing in the third panel where she says, you don't just go up to people and order them around, which is exactly what Mika's done on at least one occasion in the past. Even though she's done it to other people before, she feels completely justified when people do it to her and, you know, just killing them and doing horrible things to them. Although, obviously, Tresca getting injured played a huge part in that. But Mika also expresses some feelings of justification that she can do what she wanted to them because they went up and were rude to her, which is something that's covered a little bit in the fourth panel here. And then in the fifth panel, she feels kind of appalled at it, at her own thoughts, but then at the very last uh, thought on the panel sort of reveals what her actual feelings are, which is that there was some element of her that really kind of liked what she did. Page 241, so in comes Ennio, and I guess it's time to reveal Ennio. Originally, people thought, and I can totally see why, that he was modeled after Jolie Bindo from the Knights of the Old Republic game, which is a hell of a game, too. I was just thinking about that earlier. He wasn't, although it turns out that he looks exactly like it. But no, Jolie was supposed to be more of a lookalike to Captain Sisko from Deep Space Nine, who I always thought was a really cool character. And, uh, and the actor was really great, too. I think his name is Avery Brooks. He did a really great job. Very handsome-looking man, too. So I kind of tried to model Ennio after him, but it just didn't work out. Ennio shows up and calls Mika Murakami-san, which is a bit of a clue that he knows more than he probably should. So he introduces himself, and then at the very end you see this dog here, and this boggled my mind that people actually, someone I recognized who this was, this dog Ennio is from a game called Task Times in Tone Town, which is one of the first computer games I ever had, and so that's where Ennio got his name from, and that's what this image is referenced to, and I was kind of gobsmacked that the guy recognized it, because you have to have actually played it, because if you just go to Google and search for, like, Ennio dog, you won't find anything. And so the fact that someone actually recognized it and then posted a link to it in the forums, which you can find if you go and look, just amazed me. So at any rate, Mika insults him right away. Not intentionally, but Mika, again, is not very good at saying things that, uh, that don't cause problems. Page 242. So there's a nice time-saver shot in the first panel where I just show the ocean and some mountains. And Ennio explaining a few things. And I think I even said in the last, well, the second-to-last podcast from now, when I said that I intentionally leave the time that's passed vague, this is an indication of it here, where Ennio says you'll be in Nirmara soon enough. He doesn't say, you know, in a week or two days from now or anything like that. He just kind of says soon enough, but probably at least one or two days. 
So Mika is less than thrilled at being in this position where he knows way more about what's going on than she does and, and starts to get frustrated about it. But Ennio is always playing with her, and, and that's sort of what Ennio does, is he has a, a knack for pushing Mika's buttons and saying things that play with words a little bit. And so that's one of Ennio's bit of shtick. And here he asks some revealing questions about Mika and her relationship to what makes her so violent and what makes other people so violent, which is going to be carried on to, into the next page page 243, and here's some very unsubtle explanation of what's going on, yeah, especially the relationship between Mika and some of the other characters in the story. And so, and then in panel four, Eno says smile, which is more of a general statement that Mika should smile more, partly also because she's not smiling at the moment. And then cut away to Tresca, who doesn't see Eno. And why doesn't she see Eno? Well, wait and find out. And so Eno is gone, page 244. So Tresca goes up to have a little conversation with Mika, which starts out as somewhat of a discussion about what happened and trying to sort of be gentle about it, but eventually Tresca starts to get more aggressive. And I think it's partly because she feels that Mika's stonewalling her and not really opening up about why she did what she did. Part of it is that Mika feels a little embarrassed about having flipped out, knowing that part of it was side of her that she doesn't really think that Tresca would approve of, and also that she feels embarrassed about possibly admitting to Tresca that she went nuts mainly because Tresca was injured so badly. Page 245. And so now it starts to, to hot up between Mika and Tresca and their uh, conversation becoming an argument. And so when Mika realizes that Tresca is just trying to make a point and asking questions to do it, she sort of clams up even more. And Tresca gets even angrier about that. Also, Mika says in the fourth panel that Tresca is mad at her for trying to protect her. She says that, but she doesn't really realize that Tresca doesn't understand that part, and she sort of kind of assumes that she does, which is one of the reasons that she's getting kind of mad about Tresca's getting mad. And in the very end, Mika's just remaining silent because she's not going to argue because she knows she really can't, and so there's no point in even, even bothering because it's just not going to go anywhere. Page 246. Mika is not very good at lying, and so when Tresca says not to do it again, Mika doesn't really say anything because she knows that she probably will do it again, so she can't really say that she won't. Eventually, Tresca pushes and Mika snaps and says, fine, she won't kill anyone again. But she doesn't really mean it. She's just saying it to placate Tresca, as you can see in the final panel of the page here, where she says she'll kill anyone who hurts Tresca, which kind of leads into what happens later on in, in Near Tendra. Page 247. So that scene's closed out, and now we get to see Near Mara. And this is another fun establishing shot where there's a lot of stuff going on. The clouds don't look quite as good as they did at Near Candela. And I think that I probably should have taken off the line that outlines the mountains in the distance. But otherwise, there's a lot of fun stuff to see. There's a building up on the mountain in the distance, which has absolutely no significance. A lot of people thought it might have. But no, it's just something there for a point of interest. And that's, like I said in the past, a lot of things that I put into these establishing shots, I do mainly just to make it look like there's something going on and look like there are things that actually have a place and a purpose in this world. Even if they don't have a place in the story, they still serve some purpose to the locals. Nice little trees outlined in the in silhouette there off in the very far tip of the mountains, which I like a lot. And if you look along the sort of promenade here, you can see a lot of interesting things and people talking and having conversations. There's a little park there across from the beach, way up in the distance, and people talking, having little conversations. I don't think the water looks all that good, to be honest. The buildings look okay in the density. I think it probably could have extended a little bit farther up the mountains because it kind of stops a little bit abruptly. 
And in the foreground, there's a woman standing up on the balcony with a clampa. And the clampa, this wasn't intentional, but it kind of looks like the clampa is just staring straight up at her ass, which uh, it's not, but it ended up looking that way. And there's a dude down at the bottom center looking up at that woman in the bikini. And so as you can see, the entire idea of the, the Nirmara sort of waterfront was that they have this upper walkway, which is raised a bit from the beach. And then there's this lower level that's kind of carved into that where you can have shops and restaurants and things like that. And so the restaurant where Mika is having her drink with Evan and, uh, and meets up with Tresca in about, I don't know, 20 pages or whatever from now, that's along here. It might even be those blue umbrellas that you can just see the edge of, but I don't know for sure. Page 248. So the search does continue. Evan's still looking for the artifact, and Mika's there with him. And a little bit of explanation about the uh, Sif artifacts in the war, which of course I've explained later on in Chapter 6, the relationship between the war and the Durad and the Sif. But at this point, it wasn't really explained, so people start to get a, a bit of an understanding of the relationship there. Also explained that most of the artifacts really aren't out and about. So it is kind of unusual to uh, to see a Sif artifact that isn't already in the possession of the Durad. So Evan gets the guy to, to see if he can find anything out. And then the guy says that he's going to let Evan know the day after tomorrow whether or not he's found anything. And that sort of leads into what happens later on in Chapter 6 when Mika is attacked and then regains consciousness a couple of days later. And at that point, Evan's already found out that the artifact is somewhere else and, and probably in near Tendra. That also just kind of goes to also support the fact that Mika's been out for a couple of days. Page 249. And so this was kind of an interesting effect that I don't know how well it's conveyed, and I don't really know if I could have conveyed it much better, where Mika hears a voice and is freaked out by it. It would have been fine if it were on a you know, video or something or on a movie where you could hear a voice from off screen and you know you as the listener would recognize the voice. But in this case, Mika recognizes the voice, but you know all voices look the same in a comic. So that's something that was not super well conveyed, but like I said, I don't know if there's any way you could do it any better. And of course, Mika draws her sword, so naturally I have to have a close-up shot of Mika pulling her sword out of the scabbard and sort of attacks Sydney. It's not really an attack, but she's trying to keep her at her distance. But it's a little bit too late. Sydney's already closed. And there's also, if you look at the swish behind them, it changes color, so Mika's is sort of red-looking and Sydney's is sort of uh, orangish-yellow-looking. But like I said, Sydney was way ahead of Mika, so she's already got the tip of her knife at Mika's neck. Page 250, so Evan reacts. Again, when Evan swears, you know something's really wrong. So he tries to get Mika to heal, but it's not really working out too well. And so eventually he just yanks her back completely, and in doing so, causes Sydney's knife to cut Mika's neck a little bit, not very deeply. And in the final panel, Sydney's trying to figure out the situation a little bit, because she recognizes Evan, and she recognizes that he's from the church but she doesn't really know why exactly he's with Mika, who clearly isn't. Also, part of the reason that Evan's reacting the way that he is is because of the way that Mika overreacted completely when they were fighting the bandits, so he's a little bit more uh, concerned about stopping that kind of thing. Although, he probably wouldn't care too much if Sydney were killed, but he still doesn't like killing on principle, so he's going to try to stop it if he can. Page 251. So, Sydney's starting to get a little bit aggressive here because she doesn't like when people, especially the church, get in, in the way of what she's intending to do, even if it is duty, which she doesn't really care too much about. It's not like a personal goal of hers to find this artifact, but it is her job, and so she doesn't want anyone really interfering. And so she takes the opportunity to tease Mika about looking like a little boy, which is something that I think I mentioned before, that someone said that they thought that Mika was a boy early on. 
And so that Sydney kind of plays into that because one of the original points of the design of Mika's character was to look not incredibly feminine. So Sydney makes reference to that. And someone actually thought that Sydney was flirting with Evan in the second to last panel, which really wasn't the case at all. She was just sort of striking a pose. Because Sydney, at the very least, knows that she can uh, strike a pose, particularly if it's kind of an evil pose, which in this case it sort of is. And Evan is forcefully persuading Mika not to continue to aggravate the situation even further. Page 252. So here's Sydney trying to get Evan to just knock it off. And this actually, the first panel on this page, I believe I had a little tutorial, not a tutorial, but a step-by-step explanation of how this works in the forums, so you can go look for that. Sydney gives Mika a little bit of a warning, and now that she knows Mika's name, she can use that. And Evan is quite relieved as he shoves Mika out of the store and almost out of the page in the final panel here. Also, Sydney, I, I very much like the way that Sydney's hair sort of has a nice arc to it in the fourth panel, which is, like I think I've mentioned, one of the things about Sydney having this ponytail is that it makes for very good look of motion as she's walking. All right, so that's it. Questions. This is a question from David. He asks, can we assume that Yumiko and Mika went through the exact same teleportation since they were in the same machine? For example, if a time change occurred, would it have to apply to both of them because they both were teleported to Regir, or do the effects work individually and they were lucky enough to both land in the same five feet of each other out of the whole galaxy, conveniently having them appear to be of similar age? Also, if the teleporters can affect location and time, is there anything else that can change? No. The teleporters pretty much just took everything that was inside the teleporter chamber and moved it all somewhere else. So there wasn't any particular change in Mika or Yumiko or anything like that. It just picked them up wholesale and dropped them off somewhere else. Next question. Is there some form of ruling power involved in this world or these areas? There's obviously the church, but they're more as protectors of the peace, like Jedi or something. And the soldiers there seem to maintain city order. But is that a form of militia, or do they actually work for a greater power? Are there set laws on Regeer or government system? There are no really international bodies. The only two that sort of act that way are the church and the Durad, and they both sort of have a wider reach than a single city for their own particular reasons. The Durad, partly because of the nature of how they were formed as a multi-city force, and also because they just have the military might to go around and be assholes wherever they want. And the church also has influence across multiple cities because of faith and people supporting the church all around the place. But otherwise, there's no organization that has a wider reach that hands down dictates to anyone. And the cities themselves are kind of like city-states and have their own set laws and stuff. Although, presumably, by mutual agreement, they work out so that they have similar laws for things like various crimes, you know, murder, theft, that sort of thing. Presumably just to make things easier on everyone. And even the church itself, as far as being a, a wider range body, doesn't actually have a lot of independent authority. When they're in a city, they would work pretty closely with local government and local law enforcement if they needed to do police-like things. So it's not like when Evan has a, a dude arrested and he goes to the church to go to prison, he, they would throw them in whatever the local police prison was. Finally, is Regeer considered a relatively normal planet in terms of atmosphere, geography, gravity, laws of physics, etc.? Or are there any differences important enough that we need to know about? Well, as far as all the Earth-like stuff goes, it's pretty much the same. Obviously, the geography is different. I mean, it doesn't have the same land masses. But all the laws of physics are pretty much the same, and all the laws of formation of continents and things like that are pretty much the same. The only difference is that there are extra laws that affect things like magic, which obviously don't apply in our world. And, of course, it kind of has to be the same as Earth, because otherwise then Mika and Yumika would have just died right away whenever they appeared, and then it wouldn't have been much of a story. 
So anyway, thank you, David, for those questions. They were very good. And next time I will talk about uh, more pages. So there.